My name is Leona Wright. My maiden name is Leona Lillian Wright. Born January 4th in Cornish, Maine, 1924. Welcome to Conversations About Aging. I'm Diane Atwood, and I'm traveling around the state of Maine, interviewing people 60 and older about their perspectives on aging. What a gift I've been given, this opportunity to hear people's life stories and to gain new insights and wisdom about growing older, or some people prefer to say, living longer. Take Leona, for instance. She's currently under treatment for two cancers, skin and breast cancer, and it's not the first time, far from it. Yet she exuded joy and gratitude for my visit and interest in her story and for simply being alive. And wait till you hear what she did during World War II. I hope you enjoy my interview with Leona Bright Chassie, age 95. Thank you, Leona, for inviting me into your house. You're, you're a, quite a collector, aren't you? I am beyond belief with I am a pack. But I always say most of my clutter is folded, so I get away with it better than most people who just throw it into the corner into a de do. <laughs> we are in Cornish, Maine, which is a lovely little community. You were born and raised here? Yes. What was it like for you when you were growing up here? In 1924, you could probably sit in the center of Route 25 and read the Press Herald, Sunday Press Herald. There was so little traffic. There were few cars. I was spent most of my time in the woods, I guess, collecting uh, lady slippers and jack-in-the-pulpits and and uh, climbing stone walls. Uh, high school was all in one building. I went to first grade through 12, right there in that building. We didn't have a lot of sports events, but I'll show you a horseshoe that I played in high school. Very impressive, uh, not just I, but four, three other girls. And uh, we didn't have a football team. We had a baseball team and um, speaking contest and the horseshoes and just a few things like that. There were a couple of more academic type things we had, but I didn't. I wasn't a student, I hated school except boys and uh, sports and, you know, uh, we swam at Long Pond, oh, Long Pond. I jumped off the uh, Ossipee River Bridge with the high school boys right after graduation. We haven't been able to find any other girl who ever did that. And uh, let's see. It was wonderful. It was uh, I wasn't rich, but I had a very good and nice mother and a sister and uh, friends and it was it was what it was supposed to be. Is your sister still alive? No. I have a you have a picture of her mm -hmm. so we can see a picture. Mm -hmm. And there's a picture of you as I think a teenager that you showed me. You were a tomboy. 
apparently I did. I learned a lot. Diane, you have made a complete change in me. I have dragged out <laughs> pictures and junk, and I didn't know about the impressive horseshoe uh, caption under the picture, and I had long since, if I did, I didn't bother to read it, and. Uh, I have discovered things about myself, uh, I guess probably uh, at 95 you forget a lot and then uh, you brought it all back to me. Uh, my my knee gave out because of it, but... Uh, oh dear, <laughs> because what you were rooting around in your boxes and things? I was, I was on it for three or four days and I, did, I don't... <laughs> I don't get that much exercise. I wish I did, but I'm going to work on it. You've given me a whole new life. <laughs> well, you've made my day with that. At 95. Well, so let's get back. After high school, did you go to, did, was it called college back then? Well, it. I didn't, I, I was happy that I didn't have enough money to go to college because I didn't like school. But President Roosevelt signed a order to organize a woman's navy. And uh, I said, uh, oh, I don't want to go to college, but boy, if I could join the navy. And uh, I said, could I, a little girl from Cornish, Maine, get to the wherever you would have to go? And I said, well, lots of 18-year-old boys have had to do it. I don't know why I can't. So I started thinking about it, and I wanted very much to be in the Navy, and but uh, to get into the Navy, the women had to be 20 years old. The boys could be 18, but the women had to be 20. Well, what am I going to do? So my mother, there was a, uh, a factory in the next town in Limerick, nine miles away, uh, that made... Uh, yarn to go into blankets and uniforms and whatever needed for uh, these uh, military people. And I, we uh, went on a little putt-putt bus because gasoline was rationed, tires were rationed, etc., etc. And I think it used to do a round robin between Limerick and Parsonsfield and Cornish, and my mother and I worked in there, and I was a doffer. Uh, I guess my mother was, too. Let me pause here for a minute to explain what a doffer is. A doffer is someone who removes or doffs the bobbins and spindles that hold cotton or wool from a spinning frame and replaces them with empty ones. Leona made about $18 a week as a doffer at Limerick Mills. Then she and her mother heard about Quaddy Village in Eastport, Maine. In the late 30s and early 40s, the National Youth Administration used Quaddy Village to provide vocational training to young people. It was part of the Works Progress Administration, or WPA, started by Franklin Roosevelt. 
Leona chose to learn about communications, but she didn't stay too long at Quaddy Village. I ended up going uh, uh, only about uh, a few months because I graduated when I was 18, and I had to be 20. That was in June, of course. And so we went off to Limerick Mills to work, and then we went to Quaddy, and I'm 20 before you know it. I was 20 the 4th of January, and by the 5th of January, I was a sailor. (laughs) (laughs) So you never lost that desire to join the Navy? Never, never, never. I wanted to be a sailor. (laughs) Were there many women in the Navy at that time? At my particular, I was... uh, We were always different. We weren't just sailors. We were in a group that is so secret, it was above top secret. It did not exist. When you look through the material, it simply did not exist. 6,000 women, the uh, waves even built the decoding machine that I worked on called a bomb. And uh, B-O-M-B-E, I believe. And uh, it was so secret, anybody could do it. You'd turn discs, I'll show you the machine, uh, picture. Uh, to, I, it, it, we weren't allowed to know what we were doing. First of all, the machines were built Uh, in Ohio, along with a national cash register and a group of very technical... They had to build the machine. There's a young man who was very special. And it was so secret that when the waves... And it has miles of wiring, of course... I don't know what it did to this day, only what I read, because we weren't allowed to know what we were doing. Let's go back to the beginning, when you first enlisted. Okay. How did you land in the secret group? What set you apart, do you think? Uh, I'll tell you what set me apart. I enlisted in Boston and went to boot camp at Hunter College in New York. And uh, when I was dismissed, when I was finished there, uh, uh, I was uh, given an after whatever, some kind of a deal to find out what. There were a couple of choices anyway. And uh, they uh, told me that I could could go to uh, Miami, University, what's the name of that place in Ohio? National Cash Register, Dayton, Ohio, that I could go to college there to learn how to repair aircraft instruments. Wow. But no. Oh, it was That wasn't it. It was a cover-up 
to go and build one of those bombs, uh, build on those bombs. That was all it was. And a bomb was really like a decoder? It was a huge machine, and, uh, yeah, it was de a, a decoder, and I don't know... It was, I can't remember if it was up against, it was built so we couldn't know what was happening with it. But let but, me understand. So when you went to this school, you didn't even know what was happening. You thought you were going to learn how to repair airplane instruments? No, I didn't go. I chose instead on this aptitude thing, uh... Uh, Washington D.C. I told I chose communications. I said no. I don't want to make. I don't want to repair. I would have been good at it. Main people are known for the what they do with their hands, and uh, and so no. I want communication. Never dreaming what I was getting into. And they let you go. They didn't say no, no, no. We want you to go. To Ohio. They let me do, they let me choose, and I went to Washington, Mass, at the Naval Communications Annex out by the Naval Observatory. And we were in Waves Barracks D across the street, a nearby walking distance. And it had two uh, checkpoints. It was uh, not unlike a prison, it was in, I would say, some kind of little prep school with brick buildings and a chapel. I remember that chapel. I'll get back to the, that. But I remember that chapel because we went over one morning. We marched everywhere, by the way. We were in a platoon or whatever and marched. And I, we had a lecture, and they said, this is secret. You are not going to come up with any secrets. Anything that you did, just because you are women, doesn't save you. We are going to be treated just like the men were. Which is probably, that was probably That fine was it, you. yeah. Yeah, I don't know, death or what. But I remember that little chapel. But to get back to where I worked, they were I, low brick buildings, seems like, and cement and steel with the machine in it, the huge big machine in the... And I don't know, and in my, where, my little square had a machine and a bench, a wooden bench, just like a plain old barn bench, and uh, that we could sit down on. And I believe there was another area where uh, girls and even civilians, maybe, and civilian men sat down to tables to work on the code. I, I don't, I just, from the reading uh, of the material, the only thing I know about what I did mostly was from uh, what I read in publications. You mean when you were actually working? 
there were a lot of mysteries, things that you didn't know? We didn't know anything. So what were you doing, actually? We j this is what I did, I think. <laughs> it's a long time ago. There were discs just about the size of your hand, metal, uh, oh, I don't know, what were they, aluminum, they went aluminum, shiny, uh, not shiny, but steel, and there are a number of them on the machine, and apparently we were handed a strip of paper to set these discs on the machine, and apparently somebody ran through a tape, a long tape with all this code on it that came from the Enigma machine, that the Germans were making their code on. And we would apparently, I don't know if, if, if they were, I don't know, I don't know. I'm assuming part of it was on a wall, apparently, that was hidden from me. So you never even saw it. You just sat at your station I turning these the dials. I saw the front of the machine. That was it. Did you ever feel that you were doing something really important? Yes, and as a matter of fact, I, I mentioned, I don't know whether I just said it to you, anybody could have done what we did, but it was so secret of having, just at 20 years old, of having to carry the burden of that secrecy was the most difficult part of all. I'm not a uh, gossip or, you know, flyabout or anything, but it just, the responsibility was unbearable. I didn't like it. How long did you do it? We, I did it, and we ended the war in Europe. And you were still, the, you were called a code we, girl, right? We, we were the code girls, and it says, that the code girls brought a quicker end to the war, and they uh, were just uh, and saved. See, they were sinking our military ships, our uh, made in Port made in South Portland, our Liberty ships, and that was the whole thing. Then the German submarines were in the Atlantic. And there was, I don't know how many, I don't know, hundreds of Liberty ships in, in, uh, across the pond between here and London because well, you didn't fly to war. You went by ship, hundreds of young men. I met a man at a meeting, at a Legion meeting, who said he went over to Europe on the Queen Mary. See what happened? So... The uh, Germans would get uh, uh, set up a whole, uh, do a new code, and then the code girls and others would decipher it, and it wouldn't be any good to the Germans, and then we can uh, open up the lane, the sea lanes, and let the convoys through and the single ships. And then they would get it, they would set up another one. And that was what apparently what we were doing. They would set one up and we would decipher it and make it no good to them. 
And uh, then, so the same thing just happened apparently over and over again. And then the war did end, and I had an opportunity to be discharged, or I had a, uh, I don't know where this came from, but an opportunity to be stationed in Pearl Harbor and do Japanese code because they went through the... We, it wasn't the same, of course, because the Japanese didn't have an enigma and etc. I don't remember too much about the Japanese code. I didn't do it that long anyway. I do remember sitting down on a bench kind of thing at a table with strips of paper that I assume had something code on it that we were looking for something. Did the work that all of you code girls do there at Pearl Harbor lead to anything that you know of? We don't know if anything led to anything anywhere. Hmm. We never knew anything, but the reason I took it was I thought it could bring a young man with a family home as an early out at the end of the war, and he could end his war earlier than uh, And, of course, who's going to resist Hawaii? Well, so at the end of the war, at the end of World War II, did you realize then that you had played this role, or was it still a secret to you what you did? It was a secret until about 15 years ago. So you went all those years without realizing what your contribution really was? Right, and we went all those years without any recognition for what we did. And people in World War II didn't go home and with bells and whistles and all kinds of praise. We didn't talk about our duty. Even the men didn't talk. They, I just got off the train like I'd been to Boston, you know, <laughs> one night, and uh, that was it for me, just like a train trip. I had long since put it away. I had just, it, it happened in my life, and I'm very proud, but uh, that's it. So when you came back after the war was over and after you were stationed in Pearl Harbor, what did you do here in Cornish, Maine? So I came home and uh, was working in a little coat factory over the street here. The building has been torn down. And a young man got, uh, we were upstairs uh, on the second floor, leaning out the window during lunch hour, and a young man stopped a truck across the street and went into a place next door, I guess, to get some lunch. And uh, we started talking with him out the window, and uh, he wanted, uh, I can't remember what really. So I said, well, you've got to bring another guy and to go with my cousin, and you've got to have a Cadillac. and. I gave him about five different th rules that he had to, to fill before he I would go out with him. But by golly, he did. He got, he did all of them, including the Cadillac. 
Leona and the young man, Bob Chassie from Lewiston, ended up getting married. He'd been in the Air Force during the war and eventually decided to re-enlist, a decision that took them around the world. They lived in Tucson, Arizona, and visited Mexico and Guatemala. Because Bob was fluent in French, he was given an assignment in Paris, France. Leona was very pregnant at the time and couldn't travel right away. Their son, Michael, who's now in his late 60s, was born in a little clinic on the Portsmouth Naval Base, and then off they went to Paris. While stationed there, they made some wonderful trips to England and Belgium, the Netherlands, Switzerland, Italy. After Paris, they moved to Honduras. Thanks to her own service in the Navy, Leona was able to take advantage of the GI Bill, and even though she professed to hating school, she furthered her education by going to beautician school in Lewiston and then taking a business course that benefited her years later. Leona and Bob's marriage broke up, and she returned to Cornish with Michael in the 60s. The business course she had taken helped her get a job in the post office, where she worked for 20 years. She was able to buy the little house on Main Street, where she still lives. She was up for the postmaster's position, but never made it to the final interview because she was diagnosed with inoperable lung cancer and given only three to six months to live. That was 1984. She was 60 years old. Miracle of miracles, she survived that cancer. But the job would have positioned her nicely for retirement, and instead, she says she now lives below the poverty level. I have to turn it down. It would have been I, the postmaster job in a small town like this, with taxes the way they are, it's, it's a good job. And I would have been sitting pretty right now, but... It didn't happen. That was a, a very tragic thing that happened to me because I had always paid my bills. I had always taken care of everything. Never, no, nothing. Just, just did a good, you know, good job at, at being an adult. So I went on and I had that. I was ten years recovering from that cancer. But they gave you three to six months to live, and here you are, 95 years old. Dr. Pickers happened to find, he was, he looked, he just retired, by the way. He looked like he was about 15 years old. You know, he isn't a large man anyway. And he was jolly, happy. He he was my uh, hospital doctor. That was my first trip with him. And I was 10 years recovering and probably would have been more, except I got another cancer and another and another. All connected to the lung cancer or separate? I had that one 20, uh, 10 years. I, I had to learn to walk. I, I, I was... Oh, he chose the right chemo and called me his miracle patient. I was I had fifteen minutes of fame as a miracle patient from cancer, from uh, inoperable lung and lymphoid, and then I went in uh, on the next twenty years and had the one down here. And breast. What do you mean the 
What do you mean the one down here? Was it on your it skin? It was in the lymph node somewhere. I remember getting the biopsy down down somewhere. And had it come from the lymph. lung cancer originally? Did they tell you? Yes, yeah. And then I had, and I've always had skin cancer. I've had skin cancer throughout and lots of, I had surgery and then uh, the, with the breast cancer, I had a surgery. And with one of them, I had both chemo and radiation. And because I got too much radiation, I developed a heart condition. And so I have a pacemaker and I'm learning to live with that. And we monitor it every three months. I'm connected with Mercy Hospital. I have a nice heart doctor, a nice, I like him. And uh, I have <laughs> podiatrist, <laughs> you name it. And you have Tracy, what Dr. Weisberg. But here you are at 95 and you're battling yet another cancer. I have can breast cancer again. What do you think it is about you and your constitution that you have survived all of these cancers? I have no idea. I have, I keep telling anybody who will listen that somebody somewhere wants me to be 95 and that I should handle it with as much dignity as I possibly can. Is it hard and sometimes? That's it. Is it hard sometimes for you to handle it with such dignity? Yes, yes. But it's not hard mentally. I have no fear of, uh, you know, I trust. Uh, I just say, okay, somebody wants me to live. Who? How about you? How do you feel about living to be? I want to live. I want to get my grandsons married. I want to have great-grandchildren more than anything. I want to live. Oh, I want it. Maybe I help. <laughs> I want to live. I would guess that you are lonely quite a lot. Never. Well, so I got it wrong. I got it wrong. N Never. I can reach out and touch something in my past. So you're never lonely here, even though you live alone because you have so many wonderful memories that are that surround you, really. Well, Michael is really here a lot and he stays over a lot. What's it like for you day to day? What makes it a good day for you? You, <laughs> you're going to have to come more often, but I miss going out. What kind of opportunities do you get besides Michael? Are there people who help you? Are there people who volunteer to take you places? I have a man coming who has helped me with a, a, a volunteer group in Kiesa Falls, wonderful group, and you give money sometimes for supplies and they help you do things that need to be done. My bathroom floor needs to be done badly. And, uh, and he has uh, kind of said he might be able to do it and to build a rail, a uh, little arm rail to get down over those cement. I, don't, I, I can't manipulate the cement steps up front. 
and uh, I can't wait to get something arranged so that I can take my wheelies. I have my chair on uh, with wheels on it, you know, that little The walker that has a seat? Uh, 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 Yeah, uh, with that little seat with the basket underneath that you can put things in and and get out and walk and try to uh, make myself stronger. I'm I'm ready to go. I want to I don't want to be more crippled. I want to get out and get some exercise. And but I don't get out enough and I don't get out socially. I'm surprised I can talk to you at all because of my social life. Because you don't have a social life. I don't at, at the doctor's office. That's it. At at the waiting room. That's my social life. And uh but Hey, you do what you can. That's what you, that's all you can do. How do you maintain such a wonderful disposition? I don't have anybody to fight with. <laughs> I guess maybe. I don't I'm not a disagreeable. I'm a Capricorn. The Capricorn get always climbing up the hill. And uh, then you have a setback, and then you get up and start climbing again, and then you have a setback, and then you start climbing again. That is me. I am never without a setback, and uh, I. You just kind of have to plow through and do the best you can. Just the same with being 95 with all the dignity you can muster. (laughs) Any last things you want to say that I should have asked you that I didn't? Anything that is important to you? Of course, but no, but you've got enough. Okay. (laughs) That's enough life for anybody. That's a long life, 95, and if you're gonna, you know, live to be 100, you've still got a few years to go. (laughs) I've got some life to live, I hope. You've been listening to Conversations About Aging. I'm Diane Atwood, and I've been talking with Leona Chassie, who's 95 years old. If you have anything to say about our conversation or any of my other conversations about aging, please let me know. Something resonated with you, constructive criticism, you want to recommend someone to be interviewed, or you'd like to be a podcast sponsor, whatever. I want this podcast to make a difference in people's lives. If you're listening on a podcast app, write a review. If you're on the Catching Health blog, write a comment. Or send me an email, diane at dianeatwood.com. You'll find pictures of Leona, a written transcript of our conversation, links to more information about the Code Girls, and other conversations about aging at catchinghealth.com. This podcast was made possible by Avita of Stroudwater, a memory care facility, and Stroudwater Lodge, an assisted living community, both in Westbrook, Maine. You'll find out more about them at northbridgecos.com. Many thanks to Smith Atwood Video Services for editing the podcast. See what else they have to offer at smithatwood.com. And a thank you to Tom Muser for his support. He's director of the Center for Excellence in Aging and Health at the University of New England. 